seated. Hey, I can't speak for you, but I know I'm a child of God. And I pray that you too are a child of God. Good morning. Welcome to Northside Baptist Church. Man, isn't it good just to worship the Lord Jesus? Isn't it good? Man, it's just good to sing. Sometimes it's good just to, just to stop singing and just to listen to others sing and just to hear you worship. Man, it's just so encouraging. Again, welcome to Northside Baptist Church. If this is your first time, I want to extend a special welcome to you. We are so thankful that you joined us today to worship with us. Inside your bulletin uh, is a place for you to fill out some information about yourself. You can tear that off. Uh, there's a box right outside there in the foyer. Would you please just drop it in uh, that box? I heard somebody last week say, hey, where do I put my tithe? You also put your tithe out there in the little box right out there in the foyer um, as well. And so, uh, again, if you're our first-time guest, we just want to welcome you. Uh, thank you uh, for coming, and we, we believe the Lord has a word for you this morning. Uh, just a couple announcements I want to draw your attention to. Number one, there is a mandatory uh, Awana leader meeting tonight at 4 o'clock. So we want you to be here. There are some things that we're going to do uh, a little bit differently. Uh, we just want to be as safe as we possibly can. Uh, we're not going to change the overall purpose uh, of Awana. It's just going to look a little bit different. So if you are a leader, please be here at 4 o'clock. We all want to be on the same page next Sunday when that resumes. Also, if you'll notice in your bulletin, there's an announcement about Right Now Media. Um, if you have not signed up for Right Now Media, why? Look, you are missing a blessing and incredible resources available to you. And an easy way to sign up is, is right here. It tells you what to do now. There's a, there's a typo, and so I've got to point that out to you, because if you text what's on the piece of paper, it will not work. So um, it's right now, one word, and then there's a space. So it's right now, one word, then there's a space, NBCN. On the bulletin, it's just one big word, but to actually get it to work, you got to put that space after now and before NBCN. And so we want you to sign up for uh, that. In just a moment, we're going to look at the praying, the scripture verse, and we're going to pray. Um, you know, I spent uh, many years pastoring in Florida. And when you are in Florida, you get accustomed to snowbirds. And as a result of that, you get accustomed to them coming to you and say, hey, we're moving back north and we won't be back. And so you have to learn how to say goodbye to people. And that's not easy. And so I thought, man, I'm coming to Georgia I'm not going to have to do that anymore. But the reality is God still moves people away. And so one thing I always did in Florida, and we can't always mention every need you may have or every circumstance, but whenever God is moving somebody away, I want you to know that. And then during our prayer time this morning, I'm going to pray for that person. So Miss Charlotte, back there in the back, Miss Charlotte is moving back to Arizona. Uh, so she's going to be leaving, moving back to where is it? Your daughter's out there in Arizona, correct? And so... This is her last Sunday. Uh, Miss Charlotte, uh, man, we just want you to know we love you. We will miss you. Uh, we're praying for you. And I'm thankful that in Christ we get to spend all eternity together. So, right, we know this isn't goodbye, but whenever God does move somebody away from us, we, we want you to know that. And we want you to be uh, committed to pray for her. So I'm going to pray for her uh, in just a moment when we pray. Our praying the scripture this morning is John chapter 10. I put verse 27 and 28 on the screen. Verse 29 is just as great, but I didn't want to put too much on the screen. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And look at the comfort of verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Will you take a moment and just pray through that verse and man, if you have eternal life and you know Jesus Christ as Lord, will you just praise him that nothing and no one can snatch you out of his hand? So you pray through that verse, and then I'll pray for us in just a minute.
Father God, we just declared whom the Son sets free, he is free indeed. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. God, we're so thankful this morning that through your grace we can be children of God. That we can be sons and daughters of God Most High. And not only are we sons and daughters, not only have you adopted us into the family, but your word tells us that nothing or no one can snatch us out of your hand. You go on to say that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. God, we are sons and we are daughters. And there is nothing in this world, not even Satan himself, who can take that away from us. It's all because of who you are, God. So give us that assurance this morning. Give us that peace as we worship, as we hear the preaching of your word. But Lord, we also pray that you would convict us. If there's anyone this morning, as we dive into our text in 1 John, that does not know you, that they are uncertain as to whether or not they know you. If they've just been going through the motions of a religion and never giving their life to you, oh God, we pray today would be a day of salvation. Thank you, God, that not only are we sons and daughters, but in the body of Christ, we are brothers and sisters. And so, Lord, my heart's heavy this morning because one of our sisters, Lord, Miss Charlotte, is, God, in your sovereign will and purpose, is leaving us to head back out to Arizona. And so, Lord, we don't, we don't want to hinder that nor get in the way of that. We thank you, God, that you do have a good, gracious, sovereign purpose for our lives and Lord, what will ultimately be her blessing, and Lord, I know you're going to do great things in her there, Lord, will, will be a loss for us. And so, Father, we just want her to know that we love her, we're thankful for her. Thank you, God, for bringing her to Northside when you did. Lord, we know that she goes uh, in the Spirit. We know that you go before her, that you will surround her, you'll come behind her. Lord, we pray that she just gets involved in a church there, that, that she'll build friendships and relationships, Lord, that she has here. And Lord, we thank you the promise that we have in Christ, that this world and its present state will come to an end. And all of those in Christ, we will receive a resurrected body and we will spend eternity forever in your presence with each other. And that is our hope. You've given us that eternal life and nothing can take that away from us. So Lord, may we sing, may we worship you with confidence this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Amen. If you'll stand, let's continue to worship together.
standing if you have your Bibles take them and open them to 1st John beginning of the year we started a series in 1st John and then when COVID happened and the world changed I decided to kind of take a break from that so I didn't feel like I was rushing through it so we spent some time in the Psalms and now we're gonna return here we're gonna look at verses 18 through um, well the entire text is verses 18 through 27 we're only gonna look at the first two verses this morning and it's still going to take us probably about 30 minutes. There's just so much here. So please understand, you may have questions. There may be things that I don't get to touch on that you wish I would. It's just impossible to do that in one 30-minute sermon. But let me read the whole context for you, but then our focus will be verses 18 and 19. 1 John chapter 2, this is the word of the Lord. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Verse 22 is critical, and we're going to get there next week. Verse 23 uh, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. You may be seated. What does a Christian look like? Right, if you profess the name of Jesus, you are a Christian. What are you to look like? Well, in this short letter of 1 John, uh, that is one of John's main focuses, is to let us know what a true Christian looks like. And some of you may remember all the way back in right, January, February, that what John is doing in this letter is he's giving us three tests. Three tests. And he is writing about false teachers, right? He's exposing their false teaching and their false belief in Jesus by means of applying these three tests to their life. So the reason we know they're false is because they don't do these three things. What are they? Well, number one, it was a moral test, right living, obedience. A follower of Christ loves God's word and seeks to obey God's word. That's how you know that they're a Christian. The second test was a social test. So you have right living, right loving. They love one another. They're committed to one another in fellowship. Their actions, their words, it's evident. Even unbelievers, towards unbelievers, that they love people. And then the third test is a doctrinal test or right teaching. So right living, right loving, right teaching. And this is what John takes up in our text 
before us. So let me give you the big picture from verses 18 through 27. Then there's a couple things I want you to see, and we'll begin to put those on the screen. So here's the big picture from these verses that we'll see over two weeks. John is warning his readers. This is a passage of warning. He is warning his readers, warning his audience of false teachers who will attempt to deceive them. And then what he does, and we'll see this next, is he begins to arm them with the truth so that they can resist the false teachers. So he's warning them, warning us of them, what they will look like, what they will teach, and then he arms us so that we can resist them and overcome them. So let's focus here in on the false teachers and the warning. And number one, this is what I want you to see this morning, I want you to be on guard. Be on guard because we are living in the last hours of deception. John is warning us that we are to be on guard. Look what he says, verse 18, children. It's as if John is a wise spiritual father. And he's giving his children, sons and daughters of the faith, some important counseling, some important warning. He's saying, children, listen. And then he says this, it is the last hour. It is the last hour. What in the world does that mean? Well, the phrase, it is the last hour, in Greek literally reads, the last hour it is. Last hour it is. Anybody else think that sounds like Yoda? That's how Yoda would talk, right? Last hour it is. That's how it's written in Greek, but in English it makes more sense to say, right, the last hour. It's the last hour. This phrase, the last hour it is, only appears in all of Scripture right here. We don't see this phrase anywhere else. Now, in other parts of Scripture, we read of the end times or maybe, right, the last days. But here in John, it's the last hour. Time out. When did John write this? 2,000 plus years ago. And when John is writing to them, he is fully convinced it's the last what? Hour. Now, I didn't do the math. I don't know how many hours have passed since the time he wrote to the, this moment right now. I didn't do that this week. So how in the world can John be absolutely convinced he was living in the last hour, yet here we are today. Jesus still hasn't come. How do we know he wasn't deceived or wasn't lying? Well, let me just briefly try to kind of explain uh, what, what I think his understanding was here. So Jesus, in teaching on blaspheming the Holy Spirit, he says, right, there will not be forgiveness either in this age or the age to come. So he says there won't be forgiveness if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit in this age, the present age in which John was living, Jesus was teaching, and in the age to come. So if you want to think about the Old Testament, you can think of the Old Testament as an age of promise. Right? It was promising the Messiah. Jesus comes on the scene. The New Testament becomes the age of fulfillment. So when Jesus says in this age or the age to come, the disciples were living in this age. You and I are still living in this age. The age to come hasn't happened yet. When will it come? When Christ returns. Has Christ returned? No. There's a time he's coming again, right? And when he comes, it'll usher in, right, that age to come that he is speaking of. So here's what the disciples, you read this in the New Testament, here's what they believe. They believed, because Jesus taught it, that they were living in the last days. They were living, as John can say, in the last hour. Now, when did those last days begin? They began with the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus is raised, right, the last days begin. And those last days will continue till when? Jesus Christ comes. Now, some people push back and say, look, man, it's been 2,000 years of last hours and last days that can't be right. It can't make sense. I love what one uh, person writes. He says this, nothing is so damaging in the study of New Testament prophecy as to imagine that the eternal God who stands above and outside of time is bound by your clocks and our calendars. The only life I've ever known is one that is marked by time and calendars. It's the only life. I am bound by time. My God is not bound by time. 
So what we're trying to do is we're trying to force our time and our understanding on God. And the the scripture says one day for us is like a thousand years to God. And a thousand years to God is like one day for us. So could the disciples understand they were living in the last days? And the last days are still ongoing up until this point. Yes. Yes. Because we don't know how long the last days will be. We are living in the last days. We are in the last hour. And church, hear me, it's later than it's ever been before. I love the story of a young boy. He was playing at his grandmother's house, and they had a grandfather clock. And man, he would love it when it would get to 12, right? Both hands pointing up, and it would begin to, right, just chime away. And so he always liked to count it. One day he was counting eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, and apparently something went wrong with the mechanism in the clock, and it just kept going. And he began to count 13, 14, 15, 16. He couldn't believe his ears. He gets up off the couch. He runs into the kitchen. He says, Grandma, Grandma, it's later than it's ever been before. <laughs> Church, it is later than it's ever been before. Right now, you are one day closer to Christ's coming than you were yesterday. Look, I don't know when he's coming. It's not my job to try to discern when he's coming and to pick a date. Don't get caught up in that. We know he's coming, and we know with every passing day, we're closer. So what does John want? He wants his readers to live with urgency, to live urgently, right? To live urgently, to live with a sense of purpose. So many Christians are living as if it's the first quarter when we're in the fourth quarter. I love football. Maybe you love football. I never played football. Actually, I played and I quit because I didn't like to get hit. That probably, doesn't, that probably doesn't surprise some of you after you've known me for about eight months. You're like, I'm not surprised at all. So I haven't really played it, but I know first quarter, I mean, every quarter matters, so they say, but some guys may go out in the first quarter and they're not given all that they can give. Second quarter, it picks up a little bit. You go to halftime, you realize, okay, we only got one half to go. Third quarter comes, fourth quarter. I've noticed more and more people, players, they start putting up the four, right? Because they're, they're signifying, they're, they're recognizing this is it. We got one quarter to go. You think of basketball. You got, in college basketball, you got two halves. NBA, you got four quarters, right? As the game goes on, you get, it gets more urgent. You get down to the last minute of the game, and there's urgency, You get five seconds to go, and your team's got the ball, and you're down by one point. You got five seconds to go, the length of the court. You don't get the ball, and you lollygag. You get the ball, and you go. Why? Because you understand we got got five seconds. It is urgent. Church, hear me. It's the fourth quarter. Time's almost up. Jesus is coming. We got to live with urgency. That's what he's saying to them. Listen. You gotta pray with urgency. Somebody needs Jesus. You gotta begin to read the Word of God with urgency. We gotta begin to tell people about Jesus with urgency. We gotta live with urgency. We can't say, well, I'm a young married couple. As I get older, we'll get more involved in church. Or, man, I'm just in high school. I'm just a young college student. I'm going to sow my wild oats, and then I'm going to mature, and I'm going to grow, and then I'll come back to the Lord. Or God will use me when I'm older. No, now's the time. Live with urgency. But, yeah, we don't panic. We don't freak out. We don't run to the mountains and get in a a, a squatted uh, kumbaya position, cross their legs, just looking at the sky, waiting for Jesus to come because we're panicked. We're afraid. We don't let what's going on around us cause us to panic. No, but we do live with urgency. We We live urgently, but then notice, secondly, what he says. We live watchfully. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. i got to be honest. BJ and I, when we were just worshiping online, and we would sit here, and you guys would text in questions. One reason I didn't want to preach on this is because I didn't want a bunch of questions. Like, what's the Antichrist? What does all this mean? Because I was just imagining all of these questions coming. Because we have a lot of questions about this stuff, right? And what is, what is John saying? He is saying that... That, speaking of one, Antichrist is coming. Now, this is interesting. Um, The word Antichrist is used only by John. 
He uses it five times in four verses. If you got your Bibles right there, you can see them easy. Verse 18, that Antichrist is coming. That's one. He then goes on to say, so now many Antichrists have come. That's two. You drop down to verse 22. He says, who's the liar? Uh, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, this is the Antichrist. That is three. Chapter four, verse three. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Second John chapter seven is the fifth time. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. That's interesting. Only John uses it, and only in first and second John. Most of us, I think even most of my life, I assume the Antichrist was in Revelation. We don't read of the Antichrist in Revelation. He's only mentioned here in 1 John and once in 2 John. Now, that Greek word antichrist is simply antichristos, antichristos. Christos, the Greek word for Christ, anti means against or instead of. It is speaking of someone who is opposing Christ as an adversary or an enemy. John MacArthur says the term denotes anyone who opposes Christ, seeks to supplant him, or falsely represents him. Again, John is the only author to use the word antichrist. And again, just here in 1 John and once in 2 John. James Montgomery Boyce writes this. Though the word is infrequent, the idea of antichrist is frequent, and it's an important one. So though John is the only one to identify him as the antichrist, when you go back to Daniel... Right in, in, in some of Daniel's chapters, right, we read of this one who would be raised up against the true Messiah. Jesus doesn't use the, the word antichrist, but he talks about how many will come in his name saying, I am the Christ. Well, that would be someone who is anti-Christ. He goes on to say, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and they will seek to lead you astray. That's important. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we read about a man of lawlessness who would be known as the Antichrist. He's also called the son of destruction. This man will oppose God, exalt himself, proclaim himself to be God. And then in Revelation 12 and 13, we read about the beast. We read about the mark of the beast. We read that this beast will be worshipped by many. He'll utter blasphemies against God. So John, though the only one to call this person the Antichrist, Scripture is clear that a day is coming in which one chief antichrist who will set himself up and against Christ, he's coming. Now, here's what a lot of people have tried to do, and it's tempting. We've tried to identify who that one is. That one chief antichrist that is going to come, the son of destruction, bring about the abomination of desolation. We've tried to identify him. Many thought it was Nero. Back in the Roman days. Uh, many Protestants have said the Pope was the Antichrist. Some believed Adolf Hitler was the Antichrist. I have heard people say that Barack Obama was the Antichrist. I have heard people say that Donald Trump is the Antichrist. I don't believe any of them are the one Antichrist who is to come. I read an article yesterday on my neighborhood app talking about this peace treaty that is going on with Israel, that they believe somebody right now, and I can't remember who they said, was the Antichrist. Don't get caught up in that game of trying to identify who the one Antichrist is. Now, can we say that some of those people I mentioned were anti-Christ? Yes. Were they against Christ? Yes. But they were not the one. And I don't believe John's ultimate purpose here, when we read verse 18 and we're to see the urgency in which we're to live, and we're to live watchfully, that our focus is to be, who's the one? Because listen to what he says. You've heard that Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have already come. I think that's John's point. Yes, one is coming, but there have already been many Antichrists here. He's speaking of lesser antichrist. In chapter 4, verse 3, he talks about the spirit of the antichrist. Look, John is saying these false teachers who've walked away, who are de now denying that Jesus is the Christ, in a way they are antichrist. And so he's saying you need to live urgently because it's the last hour. More and more antichrist will be raised up. It's the last hour. And he's also saying, listen, you need to live watchfully. You need to live watchfully. Why? 
Because what is the purpose of these false teachers, these antichrists? Look at verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. We're going to talk more about false teachers next week, what they believe, what they deny. But this, for the sake of our purpose this morning, I simply want you to hear this. Church, you need to live watchfully. And the only way you can live watchfully is if you stay grounded in the Word of God. How do you recognize a counterfeit? By knowing what the real thing looks like. The only way to recognize an antichrist, that message from the world that is false, is to know what is true. And if you don't know the truth, then you're going to be deceived very easily. So live watchfully. Know the word of God. Stay alert. Be ready. Because when Jesus Christ comes, we want to be found faithful. So hey, live urgently. Live watchfully. And then we come to verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Here's what I want you to see secondly this morning. Is that true believers, true believers in Christ cannot fall away from the faith. But false believers always do. Verse 19. This is... This is a heavy, important verse, and I want us to take our time breaking it down. Verse 19, they went out from us. They. Who are they? Well, they were the false teachers that John is now rebuking, warning them about, giving them the three tests. You'll know they're false because of these things. They were false teachers, which means they were also false believers. Look what he says. They went out from what? Us. They weren't just out there to begin with. They were part of us. They were here, a part of the fellowship. And now they've went out from us. He's saying they were false believers. And he's warning them about them. And man, that's the kicker. They went out from us. John is saying, listen, they had professed the same faith we professed. They hung out with us. They were probably baptized. They probably partook of the, the Lord's Supper together. They ate the bread together and drank of the cup. Maybe they drank out of the same cup. Like this, this was who they were. And now they're gone. He said they went out from us. Why? Why'd they leave? Well, hear me. They didn't leave over a trivial matter. They didn't leave over the color of the carpet. Have you guys been in over here in the, in the other building, seen the carpet, seen the flooring? Doesn't it look great? I think it looks great. It still smells strong in there. Eventually, I think that'll go away. But who knows? But to my knowledge, no one left the church over that. You say, that's silly, pastor. Who does that? Oh, there have been people to do that. Because they didn't like the color of the carpet. They didn't like the color of the chairs. They say, I'm out. The people here in 1 John didn't leave because they didn't agree with the worship style. There wasn't people saying, look, Curtis. I love Curtis because he sings the hymns. Brian, not so much because the praise songs. Or I like Brian, man. I love the praise songs. But Curtis and his hymns. And so they didn't leave over that stuff. You say, Pastor, do people really leave over those matters? Oh, yes, they do. Yes, they do. They didn't leave because they didn't like John's preaching and preferred Apollos' preaching. Some people just, you don't drive with the pastor. I don't like his preaching. It needs to be more topical. Or, man, he just preaches through books of the Bible. That's boring. He didn't tell enough funny stories or, or, or whatever. Man, our camp pastor, when we went to camp, man, he was funny. He was funny. I'm not funny. Like, if you, if you just want to be laughed and entertained, that's just not who I am. Right? Some people may leave over that. That's not why they left. Why did they leave? It wasn't over a trivial matter. It was over a doctrinal matter. And they left, verse 22 says, because they denied that Jesus is the Christ. Now, can you imagine how that must have sent shockwaves through that church? Here are men who were a part of us preaching the gospel who were now gone from us, denying that Jesus is the Christ. Can you imagine if tomorrow morning, four of our deacons, and I won't mention names because I don't want you to think, oh, you think they don't know Jesus. I'm not mentioning names. Can you imagine four of our deacons just left? Not because of the music or the color of the carpet, but they leave. And next Sunday we get word they've started their own church. And they're standing up 
preaching and denying that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. I don't know about you, but that would wreck me. Men I've prayed with, men I don't even know as well as you know, men who would have been with you in the hospital when you had your baby, men who would have prayed over you when you lost your mom or dad, men who would have been there for you, pointing you to Jesus, now suddenly saying, Jesus is not the Christ. That would wreck me. And I imagine it would wreck you, and you would be thinking, what in the world has happened? What is going on? How could they do that? We wouldn't struggle with that. So what happened? Well, he tells us the last part of verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But here he says, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Did those men who were part of them and now left denying that Jesus is the Christ, did those men lose their salvation? I would argue no. Because what John tells us is when they leave, they reveal to us that they were never part of us. Uh, CSB says they never belonged to us. They were among us. We thought they belonged, but in their departing, it reveals they never really belonged. They never knew Jesus Christ. People often ask the question, can I lose my salvation? This is a question people struggle with. But this was an issue that our camp pastors, man, they dealt with. And I, and I, I was thankful for that. But this is a deep issue. Can I lose my salvation? I would pose to you, that's the wrong question to ask. It's not, can I lose my salvation? The question I think to ask is this, can God lose you? Can God lose you? Can something, anything take you? away from God if you have believed in his son Jesus Christ. And I think the scripture is emphatically clear. The answer is no. Nothing can take you away. Right? Look at the front of your bulletin. I put the scripture on there for a reason. If you got a bulletin, there's only one per family probably. So it says, for I'm sure that neither in all these things are marked out death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So here's what I believe. Salvation didn't begin with you. Therefore, you can't lose it. You are saved by the grace of God. Therefore, God will not lose what he has saved. And then we prayed through this earlier, right? In, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I mean, I didn't notice for the longest time, but Jesus says, all I ever remembered was no one will snatch you out of the Father's hand. But Jesus says, not only will they not snatch you out of his hand, but they're not going to snatch you out of mine. It's as if you got a double grip on you. No one can take you away from Christ, and that includes yourself. So I think John is clear here. These men, and maybe women, who walked away from the faith were never saved to begin with. They never were. So if tomorrow four of our deacons leave and they deny that Jesus is the Christ and they never repent, the only conclusion I can come to is they didn't know Jesus ever. We thought they did. They thought they did. But ultimately, over time, we're going to see who you really are. And if you this morning don't really know Jesus and you're just playing the religious game, you think you do, You've convinced us that you do. It's just a matter of time, hear me, before something happens in your life that will cause you to say, I'm done with you, Jesus. And you'll walk away. And you'll walk away because you never belonged to begin with. You never knew Jesus. And so I want to give you in our remaining time, and please, I want you to really, really listen to me. I want to give you really Two really important doctrines that we see here in this verse. Number one is this. I want you to see there's a doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Verse 19, hear me, is a word of encouragement to the church. It's a word of encouragement because as they're wrestling with what happened, why did they leave? I think one thing John is saying to them is, listen, you weren't the problem. Those of you who stayed, you weren't the problem. The promise of God wasn't the problem. They were the problem. 
They never believed. They had never trusted, never declared, never really followed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. Because look what he says in the middle of verse 19. This is so critical. For if they had been of us, they would have what? Shout out what your word says. Continued. Anybody else different translation? Remained. Right? They would have continued. They would have remained. If they really belonged to Christ, they would have stayed with Christ. Jesus, out of his own mouth, said these words, He who stands firm to the end will be saved. Not may be saved. Will be saved. Look, I'm, I'm probably going to go over my 30 minutes that I'm trying to stay at right now. But, but, I, but I want you to hear, I want you to hear my heart. I grew up, Southern Baptist churches, I grew up hearing this phrase all the time. Once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. Listen, I believe that. I believe that is true. I believe that if, if you are saved and you've given your life to Christ, that you are always going to be saved. You can't lose that because of your sin. You don't have to wake up in the morning wondering, am I saved today, am I not? If you give your life to Christ, you will always be saved. But hear, hear my heart. I don't like that terminology. I don't. I prefer the perseverance of the saints. Why? Because I grew up in an era in which many pastors, all they really wanted was for somebody to walk an aisle. They, they could manipulate invitations to get people to come forward. It's about walking an aisle. It's about signing a card. It's about giving it to Miss Barbara. She'll put you on the roll. We'll even baptize you. And so for them, as they continue, they don't ever really grow in their walk with Christ. What they think is, man, I got saved. I walked an aisle. I filled out a card. I said a prayer. I'm good. I'll spend forever with Jesus. And so the one saved, always saved, to a certain generation, to a certain population, it's deceiving to them. Because just because you said a prayer, or just because you got wet in the baptistry, doesn't necessarily mean you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. I love what J.D. Greer said, and our camp pastor mentioned it. Once saved, forever following. Once you give your life to Jesus, you are going to forever follow Jesus. You're going to remain steadfast till you die or till Christ comes. Now, will there be seasons of your life where you may backslide a little bit, where you may not be as urgent as you were before? Yes. And that's where it's important for the church to come alongside of each other and to encourage each other. But at the end of the day, you'll repent. You'll come back. You'll return. I mean, I'd never heard this, and BJ shared this with me. He doesn't love the word rededication. He loves the word repentance. I never heard of that, but I love that because it is we're repenting. That's what rededication is. We're repenting and we're returning to the Lord. Jesus is clear. Those who were saved will stand firm to the end. Listen, the evidence of a false profession of faith is that eventually you'll abandon that faith because it was false. The evidence of a genuine profession is perseverance. You will stand firm to the end. So hear me. Verse 19 is an encouraging verse, brothers and sisters, because it teaches us that the one who has professed faith in Jesus Christ will continue with Jesus. They will follow Jesus. So often what we have done is we have tried to measure church success by numbers because we can count you. Count, count your heads. Count how many people are here and there. And so we think, well, we got more people. We're growing that success. But right? I would argue true success is how many of us continue to follow Jesus. Are you not only here, but are you growing in your walk with Christ? Like, are you loving Jesus more today than you did last week? Do you look more like Jesus today than you did last week? Yes, there may be ebbs and flows of your life, but you keep following, keep trusting in Jesus. So I prefer perseverance of the saints. A saint, one who has come to Jesus, will persevere to the end. We'll see it, it's evident, and we'll rejoice in that. But there's a second doctrine here, and that is this. The visible versus invisible church. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a visible church. We are a visible church. Like somebody counted the number of heads today. It's visible. We can count that. But there's also an invisible church. 
And the visible church might be the church here at Northside Baptist. The invisible church is the believers in Christ throughout history who have trusted in the name of Jesus. That's the invisible church. We're not all gathered in one building. Many of them have already died and gone to be with Jesus. That's the invisible church. There's two components. The church we can see and the invisible church comprised of believers throughout history. R.C. Sproul contrasts them this way. Faith professors, the visible, those who profess faith visibly, and the faith possessors, those who have actually not only professed Jesus, but have taken hold of him in their life as Lord and Savior. Sam Storms writes this, they share our earthly company, but not our heavenly birth. Church, hear me as we close. Verse 19 is encouraging to me because my salvation in Christ is secure. But verse 19 is terrifying to me. Because what John is saying is we can belong to a church. We can be counted Sunday after Sunday. Your name can be on a church Sunday school roster. Miss Barbara can have your name on the church roll. But just because you're among us doesn't really mean you belong to us. And that's exactly what they experienced back in John's day. There were people they could count, but over time, it was evident they were never really there. They never really knew Jesus because eventually they walked away. So here's my fear. My fear is the church of Jesus Christ. Our numbers look pretty good. But when we get to heaven, there's going to be a lot of people who hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. Because though their name was on a church roll, they never really knew Jesus. They had never believed and trusted in the name of Jesus. They had never said, I'm all in Jesus, I'm following you. I want to live like you and love like you and believe in you and take hold of you. And so listen, my purpose this morning is not for you to walk out of here and doubt your salvation. My purpose is that you'll walk out of here more confident than ever that you know Jesus Christ and nothing can separate you from him. Amen? But the message is entitled, You've Been Warned. If you've been playing a religious game, and only you know this. See, I can count your faces, but I don't know your heart. I don't know who in this group is really going to heaven, who really has eternal life, and who does not. Only you know that. Your spouse doesn't really know that. Only you know that. And so if you are unsure at all, before you leave, will you just come see me, see Pastor BJ, and say, look, I don't really know if I'm saved or not. I said a prayer, I walked an aisle, but there hasn't been this fruit, this evident, I, I'm, I've been doubting, I've been denying lately. Man, will you get right with the Lord so that we can celebrate that you're not just among us, but that you belong to us and that you belong to Christ. And I don't care if you're a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or you're 80 years old. In your heart, you know if you know Jesus or not. Don't let any of those distract you or hinder you if you have never taken hold of the name of Jesus to actually take hold of the name of Jesus. You humble yourself and you come to him. Only you and God in heaven know if you're a part of the family of God. Oh man, how I pray you are. And if you're not, I give your life to Jesus today. Would you close your eyes and bow your head? We're going to sing a song in just a minute, Have Thine Own Way, and I'll have you stand but before that, man, would you just, right in this moment, would you just, if you don't know Jesus Christ, regardless of your age, regardless of your background, your upbringing, would you just say, Lord Jesus, I come confessing that I'm a sinner. I've never confessed that before to you, and I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm on my way to hell, but Jesus, you alone can save me. That's so I'm coming to you. I'm crying out to you. Today, I'm going to begin to follow. Today, I'm giving you my life. Have thine own way in me, O God. And maybe you are a believer in Christ, but you're living in sin. You've 
you, you backslidden. The point here is not to get you to doubt that, but just to remind you that if you are saved, you will continue to follow. You will look like Jesus and live like Jesus and love like Jesus. And so if you're not doing that right now in any area of your life, would you just confess that to him right now? It hasn't separated you from him. He'll be quick to forgive you, but you need to confess it. You need to repent of it. Maybe there's somebody you know who is lost. Will you pray for them by name as we sing? Right where you are, you respond to the Lord. Lord God, as we sing these these words to this song, have thine own way, Lord, we, we want to mean it. Not just give you lip service, but we want to say, Jesus, your will be done, your way be done. Have your way in us. Spirit of God, move in this place as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'll stand and sing these words with us.